0: here today and we do are thankful for our freedoms we thank you for this nation lord we love our nation we have been blessed and i think about as we are able to gather here freely i i remember those who went before us and fought for our freedoms and gave the ultimate sacrifice we don't want to forget them our forefathers who fought for that, for that freedom and I pray for those who are actively serving now. They're all across the world, and we don't want to forget about them. Or our first responders, Lord, we lift them up to you, and who are working and work every day to, for our safety and benefit of our communities. And Lord, we know that our nation, that as we look at it, the blessings that we enjoy, the, the freedoms that we have seem to be eroding because there is a getting away from you. men that founded this nation on biblical principles. and Lord, we see that, even as the book of Judges declares they did what was right in their own eyes, and that's the world that's our own nation, and it saddens us. So we pray for a spiritual awakening. We do pray for a turning back to you. Sin is a reproach to any nation. We need you. We need you desperately. We need you in our own lives, in our families, in our community, and in our nation. We pray for a spiritual awakening that will bring us to you and calling out to you. So, Lord, we ask that that would take place. And we thank you that as we belong to a nation... That is a blessing in so many ways, but Lord, we're most grateful that we belong to a holy nation. That we belong to a kingdom that will last forever. So once again, as we open up your word and we see that you're the one that truly knows the end from the beginning. That there is a glorious end for us. And a glorious promise before us. May our hearts be stirred. May we be free from distractions right now. And remember, to turn those ringers off our phones. Be in our seats and attentive to these things that are very important. They, you have something for us this morning to draw us to you. And to Lord, cause us to be more in love with you than when we came in. So we give you this time in the study of your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So chapter 8, as we opened it up last week, that Daniel is having another vision. It's his second vision. And in this vision, what we read is he sees a ram as he writes down the vision, and that ram had two horns, and one was higher than the other. The ram's pushing westward and northward and southward and became great. And of course it speaks of the Medo-Persian Empire, this alliance that came together, the Medes and the Persians. And they would end up taken over babylon they were the chest and arms of silver just as daniel had prophesied in chapter 2 earlier in his captivity and as we continue reading we're going to see verse 20 specifically tells us that it speaks of this vision that that ram of the medo persian empire and then we saw a goat a goat that came at, at, at a great speed and and rammed the the uh, and ran over and trampled on the the ram and this male goat that Daniel saw speaks of Greece again told to us in verse twenty one of this chapter, led by Alexander the great so that's where we left off let's back up and, and again read in verse eight that therefore the male goat grew very strong, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken. And in place of it, four notable ones came up towards the four winds of heaven. So Alexander the Great conquered the known world at the age of 33. He began his military conquest when he was 18 years of age. By the time he was 20, he was the king of Greece. And by the time he was 33, he had conquered the known world. He never lost a military battle. And when he conquered the known world, he uh, would begin to to drink and he ended up dying and he would pass the empire or it would be passed to his four generals and the empire would be divided up in that way and Daniel he focuses on two of those generals or their families their dynasties here in chapter eight he's going to look at this one that is from the solution family which ruled north of Israel in Syria and in Mesopotamia When we get to chapter 11, what we're going to see is there are these amazing detailed prophecies pertaining... To not only the Solution family in and their dynasty in Syria to the north of Israel, but then the Ptolemies as well in Egypt. And all the hundreds of years of history of going back and forth and fighting, and stuck in between them is Israel. So these prophecies deal with how Israel is impacting with this fighting that takes place between the Ptolemies and the Solution family. Here in chapter 8, there's going to be this focus on this this Syrian king. Uh, and he's going to be called the little horn of chapter 8. And he's going to give a picture of the prophecies that we see pertaining to a future little horn that we saw in chapter 7 that's going to be uh, ruling uh, during the time of what is called the tribulation period. So let's continue looking at this in verse 9 of the chapter. And out of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. So as we read this, you might think, oh, little horn. We know that that's in chapter 7 a title of the Antichrist. But don't be confused here. This is not the little horn coming out of the ten horns in the previous chapter. That's related to the four beasts that Daniel saw. Now, if you're visiting with us, and this is all new to to you, that Daniel saw four beasts in chapter 7. The fourth beast had ten horns, and there was a little horn that came up among the ten horns. And we identified that fourth beast as this new Roman Empire, this revived Roman Empire. That will be on the scene in the tribulation period and this little horn being a world leader that will rise up and, and it is going to be told to us in this chapter what that little horn of chapter 7 is about. But chapter 8 here this little horn is coming up among the four horns uh, this Grecian Empire. Uh, The notable ones concerning the the Grecian Empire, this little horn coming up among these four generals. And this little horn, listen, is pointing to and is a picture of the future Antichrist that will come in again the latter times or the tribulation period. In verse 17, we read of this chapter, and we'll get there. We'll read that the vision refers to the time of the end. So just so we're clear, this little horn of chapter 8, speaking of a man, And we identify him because Daniel, uh, he's prophesying here. He's prophesying is 530 B.C. So everything that he's speaking of in this vision is yet future for him. But there's the near fulfillment. That is that this would be fulfilled, what is being spoken of, what we read, by a a solution king, a, a Syrian king. He would come into power in 175 B.C., His name was Antiochus Epiphanes, and he would grow in power to the south, that is Egypt, and the glorious land that we read, which is another name for Israel. It might be translated in your Bibles, pleasant land. And and what does he do? Why is he a picture of the little horn of chapter 7 that is yet to come? Well, let's begin to read this and kind of sort all of this out. As we read in verse 10, and it grew up in the host of heaven, And he cast down some of the hosts and some of the stars of the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the hosts. And by him the daily sacrifices were taken away and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices. He cast truth down to the ground, and he did all this, and he prospered. Verse 13 tells us, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me for two thousand three hundred days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. So this this little horn of Daniel chapter eight has already come a near fulfillment. Uh, Daniel, uh, seeing this little horn would be fulfilled a couple hundred years after he has this vision Is fulfilled by this Syrian king, as I said, Antiochus Epiphanes, that would come on the scene in 175 B.C., just under 200 years before Jesus is born. And Antiochus Epiphanes, he would call himself Theos Epiphanes. Theos, of course, as some of you know, means God. In other words, he would see himself as a god. And the Jews ended up calling him Antiochus Epinani, It was a play on words, and what it means is you are Antiochus, the madman, the insane one. And history tells us that he was indeed insane. He he was very brutal. He was cruel. He was a very evil man. What he did was unimaginable. So what did he do? Well, verse 9, as we read, that he set his eyes on the glorious land. And that's what he did. He he came into Israel. He had a real hatred for the Jews. And verse 10 tells us that he cast down some of the hosts and some of the ground, trampled them, and he murdered other rulers. He persecuted God's people to where he put, history tells us, as many as 100,000 Jews to death. And he did it in very cruel ways. He cast some of them off the walls of the temple. He would have this big pot that he would fry some of the people in or boil them. And in verse 11, it tells us that he exalted himself as high as as the prince of hosts. He would blaspheme God, and he would command this idolatry worship towards himself. And also that we read that the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the practices, the temple worship, and the beliefs of the Jews. So he tried to do all of that. We can see why he was called the insane one, the madman. And it is a picture, listen, a powerful picture of this future Antichrist that will come on the scene in the tribulation period. Because what we're going to read of the Antichrist that is yet to come, that when he does come on the scene, that he's going to put an end to sacrifice in the middle of the tribulation period. He will see himself as God exalting himself, and he will desecrate the temple. That is what is called the abomination of desolation that Jesus spoke of in Matthew's gospel, chapter 24, in what is called the Olivet Discourse. When the disciples came to Jesus and said, tell us about the the end of the age and and, uh, the signs of your coming— And Jesus began to do that. And in that teaching, he said, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of Daniel the prophet, so he would identify as Daniel being a prophet, he said, flee, because it will be great tribulations such as the world has never seen or ever will see again. And so the Antichrist that is yet future is going to put an end to sacrifice. He is going to be one that is going to exalt himself as God, Now, you might be thinking, well, I didn't know that they did sacrifices in Jerusalem. There's no temple there. They haven't done sacrifices for 2,000 years. It would be the second temple in 70 AD that was destroyed by Rome. As Titus and the Roman legions came in and leveled uh, Jerusalem, they leveled the second temple to where not one stone was left upon another. That was predicted by Jesus, right? But also it was predicted by Daniel, as we're going to see in chapter 9. And as we know that that was destroyed, the Jews would be left into captivity to all the nations. And even though they're back in the land, there is no temple that is there. There's no sacrifices. On the Day of Atonement, what they do is they reflect on their goodness versus their badness. But... The Bible tells us that there is going to be a temple someday in Jerusalem. And 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 tells us that, Revelation chapter 11, Daniel's book tells us that there's going to be sacrifice and there's going to be the temple where the Antichrist, as they will have sacrifices, they will, he will stop the sacrifices in the middle of the tribulation period. You can go to Israel today. Some of you have been with us, and when we've gone there, there have been times where we went into a place that was called the Temple Institute. And the Temple Institute, you can see where they're getting everything ready for temple worship. They got all the furnishings that are ready to go, the priestly robes. They talk about the sacrifices. And one of the interesting things that that they said was and we see it in the book of Ezra is they said we don't really need a building. All we need is an altar to start sacrifices. And we see that in the book of Ezra when they came back to rebuild the temple after Solomon's temple was destroyed. The 70 years of captivity are over. And as the decree goes out that they could go back and rebuild the temple, the very first thing that they did is they push aside all the rubble and they built the altar there so they could begin the sacrifices. So that's going to come to an end. There is going to be a temple in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And we know that the Antichrist, that is yet future, is going to desecrate that temple. Antiochus Epiphanes, he, de- he desecrated the temple, the second temple there as he came into Jerusalem. And the way that he did it was he took a pig, he slaughtered a pig in the Holy of Holies, and he took the blood and he smeared it all over the temple. Remember that pigs were considered unclean. And then he took the blood also of the... Of, of pigs, and he tried to force the priest to drink it, you know, the blood, or you would end up dying, and many priests were, were killed. It is believed that he set up an image of Zeus there in the temple, and we are told that the Antichrist, that is yet future, that he's gonna set up an image of some kind of image in the rebuilt temple there. So, all of this, again, Antiochus' epiphany is pointing to what is yet future with the Antichrist. Now, as we look at some extra-biblical writings, such as 1 Maccabees, that Antiochus, he wrote to the whole kingdom that we should all be one, one people. Everyone should leave his laws and and be given to the laws that he put in place. And that's what we read in the previous chapter, that the future Antichrist, that he's going to do. And as we read in chapter 7, remember in verse 25, that the future antichrist intends to change the times and the laws. And what I think that what that means is is when he goes into the temple in the middle of the tribulation period, that Paul writes that he will exalt himself as God to be worshipped as God. And we know that at that time that he will command the world to worship him and he will probably do away with all the religious holidays, any kind of, of holiday that speaks to our God, the true and living God, that is Christmas, Resurrection Sunday, uh, Passover, you know, uh, Yom Kippur, um, any of those uh, religious holidays, even holidays that are Muslim holidays or other religions their are holidays, because here's the thing, the Antichrist is going to want to be worshipped alone. And anyone in the world who does not take his mark and worship the beast is going to be put to death, persecuted. You won't be able to buy or sell. So he's going to come along, the Antichrist, to a greater degree, and he's going to put away the laws and change the times, and he alone wants to be worshipped. As we read here in verses 13 and 14, back to our text, Antiochus would make his first incursion into Jerusalem, where he killed the high priest. He defiled the temple, the time of the transgression of desolation, and he would rule for 2,300 days or about six years. He, he ruled till about 165 B.C. And what happened is Judas Maccabee, this Jewish man and his brothers, Judas Maccabee came from a priestly family, that they began this revolt against Antiochus, the Syrian army that was there. And over years of struggle, they would end up defeating the Syrian army and pushing them out of of Jerusalem. And some sources say that Antiochus, when that happened, when they finally defeated the Syrians, that Antiochus, he was over in Elam. Elam was several hundred miles to the east, what is today in Iran, the, the western part of Iran along the Persian Gulf. He gets word that Judas Maccabee and the Jews have defeated his Syrian army, driven them out of Jerusalem. He got so angry, history records, that he said when he gets back to the promised land, he made a promise that I'm going to kill all the Jews. When I get back to Israel, I'm going to kill all the Jews. And it would be a short time after he said that, that Antiochus ends up dying. He falls over dead, eaten of worms. So here, as we read verses 13 and 14, it's interesting that how long from the daily sacrifices, well, uh, 2,300 days um, was stopped. And so, you know, scholars say, what do we do with the 2,300 days? Now, a little side note. There are those who will come along and say it really means 1,150 days. They cut it in half because the translation here literally is evening and mornings, the daily sacrifices, because it's speaking of the daily sacrifices. And since there's two daily sacrifices, it's really 1,150 days. Now, you can research that on your own and come up with your own conclusions, but it, it really doesn't come out to anything. But there are also those who have taken this, And tried to predict the return of the Lord. There was a preacher by the name of William Miller. He discipled a woman by the name of Helen G. White. She was the founder of the seven-day Adventists. And what William Miller did is he looked at the scripture, verses 13 and 14 that we read. And he had determined what Daniel really meant was not 2,300 days, but 2,300 years. And of course, he had no grounds to do that. And he did some calculating using 2,300 years, and he concluded that Jesus was going to come back in 1844. And I think he began counting when Cyrus made a decree for them to come back and rebuild the temple in 536 B.C., but be that as it may. He said, according to this, that Jesus was going to come back in 1844. And what happened is hundreds of people believed Miller at that time, and they put on their white robes, And they stood on a hillside in Illinois, and they waited, and they waited, and they waited, and finally they got hungry and they left. And what Miller said was what really happened is what there was this cleansing that took place in heaven, that Jesus entered into the heavenly sanctuary, and there was this cleansing in the heavens. Now, think about it. Isn't that ridiculous? I mean, there needs to be a cleansing in heaven. And that's a part of their history that they don't like to talk about. And I mention that is because what can happen is that Christians or people can take things like this and they begin to make predictions about the return of the Lord. And keeping in mind that there's two aspects to the return of the Lord. The rapture of the church that will happen in the moment in the twinkling of an eye when he takes us to be with him. We meet him in the air. And then the second coming of Jesus Christ... We know when the second coming of Jesus Christ is going to be. It's going to be at the end of the tribulation period. That is well documented. Even Daniel documents that. But as we know that the rapture of the church, when he comes for his church, Jesus said very specifically, no one knows the day or the hour of, of when he returns. I come when you're least expected. And Jesus meant what he said, and he said what he meant. So we can clearly understand that, can't we? He said, no one knows the day or the hour. And yet there are people that come along and say, well, the rapture is going to happen or the Lord's going to you know, come for us at this time. 88 reasons why the Lord must come back in 1988. And I remember I was a young Christian thinking, oh, that's wonderful. That's great. He's going to come back in 1988 and because of The budding of the fig tree, Israel becoming a nation in 1948 and generation is 40 years. So he has to come back. And, and, you know, the the budding of the fig tree, that parable that he would say, the author, that Jesus had to come back in 1988. And, of course, he didn't come back. There was an individual recently, perhaps some of you remember, I think a lot of you do, Harold Camping. Before the pandemic, he had predicted, he got a lot of press that the Lord was gonna come back on this day. And there are people that were giving him a lot of money. And, and he would put up these big billboards that Jesus is coming back on this day. And he got every news network was interviewing him and talking about this and, and they were doing it in a very sarcastic way. Uh, yeah, the Lord's gonna come back. Here's a guy, you know, people are giving him money. Well, of course it didn't happen. Then he said, well, I made a mistake. It's actually going to be, you know, at this time. And, of course, the Lord hasn't come back during that time. Keep in mind, when the Lord says, no one knows the day or the hour, he means that, doesn't he? And if somebody comes along and says, I have a date because of some formula that they come up with, you can dismiss it. Also, there are those who come along and say, well, the Lord came back in secret. There was a cleansing in the heavens, or he came back spiritually. When Jesus Christ comes back in the second coming, it's going to be literally, it's going to be physically. We're going to come back with him, and every eye will see him. Jesus said that. very specifically he's going to come back in great power and glory so keep those things in mind and what happens is is when something like that happens like a herald camping or 88 reasons why jesus must come back in 1988 the world looks at it and they become scoffers don't they they look at you and me like you guys believe that the lord's going to come back you guys are a bunch of wacky people and 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 so We know that one of the things that we are learning even in this chapter, if these near fulfillments were fulfilled to the letter, right? We know that the future fulfillments are going to be fulfilled to the letter. And even Peter predicted that scoffers will come in the last days, saying, where's the coming of the Lord since your forefather's day? All things continue as they were. So we want to keep everything in context. We want to make sure that we understand that no one knows the day or the hour for the blessed hope when he comes for us. So Antiochus and his forces leave Jerusalem, and there's a cleansing of the temple and the rededication of the temple. What happened is they cleaned up all the blood as they drove out the forces of Syria. They, they cleaned it up. They relit the menorah. The menorah is that 7 branch. Uh, candlestick for, uh, um, that is in the holy place, the menorah. And each one of those branches, seven branches, had bowls and it had oil in it and wicks flowing around. And one of the duties of the priest was to make sure that the bowls were full of oil and that the menorah was lit. Well, when they rededicated the temple, they filled up the bowls and they relit the menorah. And then they realized, oh, no, we have no more holy oil and the menorah is going to go out in a day and the light's going to go out this is a bad sign it takes 8 days to produce a new batch of holy oil so they began to pray and as they were praying what happened was is that menorah was lit for 8 days until a new batch was made was made and it was a miracle so they called that the Feast of Lights. After that, they commemorated it by calling it the Feast of Lights, how God worked a miracle in driving out Antiochus, rededicating the temple, lighting the menorah, how God provided for the menorah to keep burning for those eight days. And the Feast of Lights is mentioned as Jesus coming to Jerusalem in the wintertime in John's Gospel that he celebrated the Feast of Lights. So that commemorates this time that we're talking about. The Jews commemorate it today and what they celebrate in December called Hanukkah. So Hanukkah, the lighting of the candles, four on each side of the main candle. And Hanukkah means dedication. That you know the meaning of Hanukkah. People say, What is Hanukkah all about? You can tell them because you came to church today on you know 4th of July weekend and you've learned it from chapter 8 here. The other thing that ties in with this happening is in the triumphal entry. Remember that the people were waving the palm branches and they were crying out, "Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord." When they drove out Antiochus or Antiochus epiphanes the Syrian soldiers, that the people cut down palm branches and they began to wave them and it was a symbol of political freedom and liberty and and we'd driven out the Syrian forces. So when Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem, it was the first time that he accepted public worship, we will in Daniel chapter 9 see that, that the prophecy of the 70 weeks of Daniel predicts the day that he's gonna, he comes into Jerusalem. Amazing prophecy. I think it's one of the most amazing prophecies that we have in all of Scripture. And remember that at that time that the people, great multitude is there, they cut down palm branches and they're waving the palm branches. And they're crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, you know, to the the king. And they are ascribing the title Messiah to Jesus when he came into Jerusalem. But as they waved the palm branches, it, it symbolized that we are going to be free from the Romans. They were looking for the sky to open up the angels to descend, the Romans are going to get destroyed, and they're going to get theirs. And when they realize that Jesus wasn't going to do that at that time, that he came to free them from a greater need, a greater bondage than Rome can put on anyone, and that is the bondage of sin. That he came the first time to suffer and die on that cross for you and for me. And it would be a few days after that, during that week, as Jesus stood before the crowds that so they cried out, crucify him. Crucify him. We will not have this man rule over us. So all that ties into what we're reading about here. When Antiochus Antiochus was driven out of, of Jerusalem. And as we look at this, we know that um, Daniel receiving the vision. And now the interpretation, verse 15, that it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision. I was seeking the meaning, and suddenly there stood before me, one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the i who called and said, "Gabriel, make this man understand the vision." So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end, mark that. And now as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep and my face to the ground, but he touched me and stood me upright. And he said, Look, I'm making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation, for at the appointed time, the end shall be. Very important as we read this. As Daniel, in the midst of the vision, he hears this voice saying, Gabriel, make Daniel understand the vision. Now, this is the first time technically that the Bible uh, names you know, one of God's angelic beings. In Isaiah, uh, somebody can make the argument, well, how about Lucifer? Well, Lucifer f- fell and became Satan, of course. Isaiah be- came on the scene before Daniel. We know that um, Gabriel is mentioned not only in Daniel, but in Luke's gospel as he announces the birth of John the Baptist to Zacharias in the temple and to Mary, the birth of Jesus to Mary, you're carrying a Christ child. So Gabriel seems to be associated with messages of the coming of the Messiah. Now, one other angel is mentioned in the scripture, and that is Michael. Michael is mentioned here, we will see, in Daniel. And then also Michael is mentioned in the book of Jude. And Dan, or Michael, that is, seems to have responsibilities concerning the nation of Israel. He is the archangel. Michael, definite article, the archangel. And as we look at this, Daniel's afraid as as Gabriel comes. He's overwhelmed. He falls on his face. And we read that Gabriel touches him and stood him up. And it is told that the vision refers to verse 17, as I said, at the time of the end. I am making known to you what will happen in the latter time of the indignation. At the appointed time, the end will come. So what we see in this vision is the near fulfillment, again, Antiochus, Epiphanes, and now a future fulfillment in the last days by the little horn, the Antichrist, um, that will come on the scene. Let's read verse 20. The ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. And for the broken horn, the four that stood on his place, four kingdoms shall rise out of the nation, but not with this power. So we've already talked about that. Matter of fact, when Alexander the Great took the world in in about 15 years, it took longer, the process, to divide the kingdom up into these four generals. After uh, uh, Alexander the Great, the great cry of Alexander, there are no, no more worlds for me to conquer, and he cried like a baby at the age of 33. He began, since he had no nations to fight against, he began to fight with his generals. So that process took about 24 years for it to really be divided up. And again, we'll talk more in detail about that as we look at that. But now in verse 23, now pointing to the future Antichrist and in the latter time of their kingdom. Now speaking of the tribulation period and the Antichrist coming on the scene when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce features. Who understands sinister schemes? His power, verse 24, shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully, he shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. He shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes and he shall be broken without human means. And the vision of the evenings and mornings which was told is true. Therefore seal up the vision for it refers to many days in the future. So this prophecy looks to the Antichrist in the last days. He will have first of all verse 23 of fierce features or countenance. Antiochus was cruel, very cruel. The Antichrist is going to be extremely cruel, who has sinister schemes, we are told. Antiochus was known for his smooth tongue and flattery, so will be the Antichrist. We've already seen that he speaks pompous words. He's going to be very intelligent. He's going to be very persuasive. He's going to seem to have the answers to the world, economically, politically. Uh, even, I bet, environmentally. Uh, he's going to bring the world together as one, and he's going to bring the world, and he's going to seem to have the answers religiously as he will then command the world to worship him. Verse 24 tells us that he will be mighty in power, but not of his own. And we know that the future Antichrist, because the Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 13, is going to be under the direct power of the dragon, or that is Satan, Verse 24, shall destroy fearfully, or that is, extraordinarily. He will destroy his enemies and God's people uh, that, uh, that he's going to come against the tribulation saints. And he's going to go against the Jews and anyone who does not give their worship to the Antichrist in the tribulation period. Verse 25 tells us he's cunning. He's deceitful. He's going to deceive. Listen. As 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 tells us, he's going to deceive through lying signs and wonders. He's going to perform miracles. The book of Revelation indicates that there's going to be a sidekick with the Antichrist called the false prophet that will be able to call down fire from heaven. As they're working these miracles, they're going to deceive people with these mighty signs and wonders. We are told by Jesus, beware of that. Beware of that in the last days. That false prophets will come on the scene and teachers with lying signs and wonders to deceive even the elect. Make sure, all of us, that we just don't base truth on miracles. Because Satan can do miracles. I believe God does miracles. But be careful because the Antichrist is going to do miracles where people are going to say, This has got to be God. This this guy is real. This guy is amazing lying signs and wonders we are told to test the spirits to see if they are of God how do we test the spirits it's not through miracles again I believe God works miracles I believe he heals he works miracles today but we test the spirits not through experience not just through miracles but through the Word of God listen to what's being said what's being taught does it line up with the Word of God and John tells us that very specifically so he's going to deceive through lying signs and wonders and speaking pompous things, being persuasive, leading people away. It's going to sound so pleasing to the flesh. This has got to be true. He once will be a destroyer, once again, as we're told, because that's what Satan does. He wants to destroy. He's going to try to destroy the world, and we know that he wants to destroy you and me right now. He's a murderer, Jesus said. Do not let him get a foothold in your life. And that's why we are told that we are to be sober and vigilant and watchful because Satan's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Do not go into his territory. We are told in Second Corinthians chapter 4 not to be ignorant of Satan's devices. Listen, he is looking to pounce on you and me, our children, to get any way that he can get into our lives to make us miserable to make us ineffective as, you know, Christians to you know oppress us to bring us down to throw the fiery darts at us because it is a battle out there. He wants to rip your head off. He's working overtime. And that's why it's so important that we submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. Can I say that again from James? Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. You stay close to the Lord. Let Jesus do the fighting. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Stay close to the Lord. Be watchful, be vigilant, be sober. But don't give in. The enemy is such a liar. He's a counterfeit. And even Paul would go on to say in Second Corinthians, like an angel of light. We have the word of God. We have the spirit of God in us. But don't give in to the deception of the enemy who's desiring to destroy our lives and your children, our marriages, our ministry, this church. And he's working overtime to do that. So he's a destroyer is what the Antichrist will be and rise against the Prince of Peace and we know that he will be broken, but not by man, but by God. Seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. It's preserved for the future, as we know that these things will come to pass. And then I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. And afterwards I rose and went about the king's business. And I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. And as we read these things, it's, this is heavy, isn't it? But one thing I want to end with arise from this place and you be about the king's business. Amen? Okay, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time that we've had together and reading this incredible chapter. And I thank you that we can be here to take in. And Lord, we know that the things that we see are leading to something. And Lord, there is difficulty that is coming, but we have the blessed hope. And I look forward to when you do come for us. and Take us out of and away from the hour of tribulation that shall come upon the whole earth. As we come to the communion table now, we know that the communion table is for the believer. Not just if you belong to the church, but for the believers. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. If there's anyone that is here, you're listening, that you're not a believer, you have not made a commitment to Christ, Jesus did come the first time to die for your sins because the wages of sin is death. He died for you specifically and individually. He hung on that cross and took your sins upon himself and he made atonement for your sins. And the Bible says to come in faith, trusting and believing in what he did, who he is, the Son of God, what he did for you and dying on the cross and rising from the grave. Because... The wages of sin being death we're all sinners. He is your hope. There is none other. And he loves you. And he cried from that cross, it is finished. He did the work. He paid the price. So now you come believing, calling on the name of the Lord. The Bible says repent, turn to Jesus. It just means turn direction. Quit going in the direction you're going and turn to him for salvation. Right relationship with the Father and the promise of eternal life. And you can do that right now. You can pray, Jesus, I come, and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I believe you died for me, and I am a sinner. Forgive me. I believe you rose again, and I ask that you be my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for your love for me and proving it on the cross, for this new beginning and bringing me into the family of God, a family and a kingdom that will last forever. And I do want to know you, walk with you, in the days ahead for all of my life.